0: The Mysteries of Watergate, Episode 15, Lou Russell, The Sixth Burglar. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement. A full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm John O'Connor, the author of the book Postgate how the Washington Post betrayed Deep Throat, covered up Watergate, and began today's partisan advocacy journalism. Many strands of the hidden story we have thus far uncovered for you meet in the person of Lou Russell, an important character in the Watergate saga, but one whose name very few people have ever heard. For purposes of brevity, I will rely on the background of Russell uh, summarized from my book, Postgate. Any sketch of the shadowy figure should emphasize his central part in the drama we will call Watergate, one, however, little understood by posterity. As we will show, Russell was, in all probability, the man who emerged into the Watergate office building lobby shortly after the arrests of the five burglars, soon to disappear before the police could question him. Russell, in other words, was seemingly the legendary sixth burglar, He was also a covert, independent contractor performing services for James McCord's private security company. As we discussed in prior episodes, the involvement in the burglary of other key actors, McCord, Hunt, Magruder, Dean, Baldwin, is clear, and but for Dean, admitted. Their motives, identity of their true principles, and nature of their actions can all be subject to good faith debate, since all have testified inconsistently with the evidence we have shown here. But Russell stands apart. Any involvement whatsoever of Russell in the burglary has earth-shaking import. If he was involved, it would only be in his role as McCord's own independent contractor on McCord's tab and unreimbursed by the CRP. It would be one thing if McCord had made a buck from Russell's labor for services provided to other McCord clients, if there were any, in fact, prior to June of 1972, but it would be quite another if the payments made to Russell by the allegedly financially strapped McCord were for Russell's services on Watergate. Such would strongly implicate a hidden agenda in all likelihood one of the CIA. If Russell were needed for Liddy's operation, as Liddy understood it, Liddy would have known and would have paid him. Surely Russell's only possible role in Watergate, assuming he had one, would be as an off-the-books CIA contractor hidden from Liddy. Simply put, if Russell was involved in Watergate, so was the CIA secretly. Who was Lou Russell? He had a long history in the shadowy venues of D.C. detective work. Starting out as an investigator in the early 1950s for the infamous House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC, which sought to root out communists in government. A beefy former minor league baseball player, Russell was a heavy drinker as well as a frequent consort of prostitutes. Since February 1972, he was a part-time contractor for McCord and Associates, ostensibly to provide security for CRP headquarters. Russell did not have his own bank account and cashed his checks through intelligence community friends, one of whom, Bernard Bud Fensterwald, eventually became McCord's criminal lawyer in March 1973 to implement the post-trial strategy of lashing out at the Nixon administration. Significantly, prior to the Watergate burglary, Russell had told several acquaintances, including Fensterwald, Fensterwald Associate Bob Smith, and former Treasury Agent Kennard Smith that he had been taping prostitutes in their johns with the apparent cooperation of the prostitutes. In White House Call Girl, Phil Stanford describes the observation of a lawyer for the Columbia Plaza Call Girl Ring, Philip Bailey, as having observed in the madam's apartment a burly man going by the name of Russ seemingly acting as security, who had been a former professional baseball player. But, in perhaps the oddest and most telling note of all, Russell had worked for the General Security Services, or GSS, for less than a year, ending in April 1972. His resignation occurred shortly before the first Watergate burglary, and right after Jeb Magruder claimed he had the go-ahead to begin the break-ins, soon to direct Liddy to the DNC headquarters. As this was occurring, McCord hired Russell to work for the CRP and security. In other words, he left the GSS and started working for the CRP and security. What was so interesting about the prior GSS job is that part of Russell's duty for GSS was as a security guard for the Watergate office building housing the DNC headquarters. This is likely more than a stunning coincidence. As a security guard, he would have had the key to the DNC offices and the opportunity to get an impression or copy of any desk key he so wished. In Alfred Baldwin's statement, if you remember him as the wiretap monitor, published on October 5, 1972 in the Los Angeles Times, he mentioned seeing, from his Howard Johnson's hotel room, McCord in the DNC office suite, on May 26, 1972, Baldwin claimed to have been occupying room 419 at the time, which on May 26 was well before the break-in on May 30. By May 30, Baldwin had been moved to room 723 for improved monitoring of the now-inserted bugs. Perhaps Baldwin was mistaken as to then, on May 26th, occupying room 419. But if he is correct, McCord, likely through Russell's security keys, already had access to the office suite. Moreover, on May 26th, before the first break-in, McCord had Baldwin listen to tawdry eavesdrop conversations, handing Baldwin earphones. This would imply, as suggested by Hogan, that the CIA was already eavesdropping on the bordello, having no connection to the first burglary to be carried out several days later. So, to recap, from Room 419, Russell saw McCord in the DNC office suite across the street. This is before any break-in. And also... At that same time, from room 419, he had also listened on the headphones to apparent intimate conversations that were being wiretapped somewhere, but this was before any bug had been placed in the DNC by the burglars. In any case, in the hubbub during the June 17 arrests, A man entered the Watergate lobby from the stairwell, chatted up the guards, and departed before the guards thought to tell the police. If Russell was involved that night as this sixth burglar who quickly exited the lobby post-arrest, such meant that the CIA was part of the operation and that the eavesdropping was targeted at prostitution calls. Unlike the Stevens scenario, no analyst can claim that the CIA was merely aiding a solely White House operation as a favor to its former clients. If Russell was involved, then McCord was an active undercover agent at the time, acting for the CIA. So merely raising the issue of Russell's participation in the burglary operation, hidden from the other burglars no less, would be to suggest a plausible revisionist narrative of the Watergate burglary, directly at odds with the conventional version published by the Watergate paper of record, The Washington Post. Early on in its reporting, on June 20, 1972, before the Post had become palpably dishonest, it published a note that the police were investigating a sixth participant, and I quote from the article, Police sources say they were still looking for a sixth person believed to have been involved in this incident, unquote. Strangely, after this intriguing note, the Post thereafter went radio silent on the question of the sixth burglar. Had Woodstein, that's my shorthand version for Woodward and Bernstein, had Woodstein learned about the sixth burglar from the pleas of the FBI? Likely from both. If Russell was involved, he most likely was the sixth burglar of Watergate lore unknown to his fellow burglars other than McCord, and the fellow who quickly disappeared from the Watergate lobby post-arrest. His participation would explain the tape that McCord allowed to remain on the basement door lock, as well as on the 6th floor and 8th floor locks. It would also clarify not only why McCord lied to others about having removed the tape, but also would explain his false statement to Liddy, that the dnc continued to occupy the office from 12 o'clock a.m. to 12:45 a.m. that morning a critical delay given the frequency and timing of security rounds in other words the burglars wanted to get in and get out between the security guard rounds russell it seemed likely to establish a late night alibi had been in the area but then had earlier departed from the watergate vicinity where he had been waiting, and went to his daughter's house in Benedict, Maryland, and was late driving back, causing Cord to delay the break-in. This was likely to establish an alibi, as we say, and it would explain McCord's frequent unexplained absences before the break-in, likely to confer with Russell, leading Liddy to later compare McCord to the fictional shadow Lamont Cranston, after a radio show, The Shadow. Finally, of course, it would all but confirm the so-called call-girl theory of motive, since Russell had been, prior to the break-in, seemingly immersed in taping and protecting a certain Columbia Plaza prostitution ring, and if in the Watergate building that night, was doing so operationally for the CIA. While there was much circumstantial evidence of Russell's involvement in the burglary at the time of Watergate, an additional intriguing fact pattern emerged years after. In the case of Dean v. St. Martin's Press which you will recall John Dean brought against silent coup author Len Kolodny and his publisher for Defamation. Certainly Dean's and Russell's finances were examined for any scent of the call girl narrative. Dean, you will recall, according to Kolodny, may be inferred to have ordered the second break-in after reading with alarm the June 9, 1972 Washington Star News article about a call girl ring involving, quote, one lawyer at the White House, unquote. In that case, lawyers exploring an interesting set of seemingly corresponding financial transaction involving Dean and Russell came up with some intriguing facts. Russell was, as always, needful of cash after the burglary. Yet, without any apparent meaningful employment that could justify it, he deposited amounts of $4,570 and $20,895 on November 15, 1972 and in March 1973, respectively. Likely, not coincidentally, Dean withdrew $4,850 shortly before November 15, 1972, and approximately $22,000 from the White House safe around the time of the second Russell deposit. These amounts, of course, neatly match up with the unexplained receipts of Russell. Accounting records show that the withdrawals from the White House safe were unaccounted for, and Haldeman has pointed toward Dean as the culprit, who has explained weakly that at least the first withdrawal was for his honeymoon, which apparently cannot be corroborated, while denying the second withdrawal. In any case, the comparison of dates and amounts makes a compelling circumstantial case that Dean quietly paid hush money to Russell, while as a cover-up he was also making payments to the known burglars from the hush money that the White House conspirators had raised. There is no record that anyone in the Oval Office knew of hush money payments to Russell, or for that matter, knew of Russell at all. If of course Dean was paying Russell, that would be game set and match in favor of the burglary's call girl/CIA related motivation, as well as Dean's agency in the break-ins. Russell would only be involved in Watergate if call girls were also involved, and Dean would only personally pay Russell if he was hushing up this aspect of the case which would damn Dean as well as the CIA, but perhaps mitigate the guilt of the unwitting Nixon higher-ups, Dean's get-out-of-jail-free card. But this evidence, while intriguing, we admit is not ironclad. Prior to Watergate, Russell had boasted to three separate witnesses, as we have described earlier, that he had been taping prostitutes replete with amusing anecdotes, according to Jim Hogan. Phil Stanford's book, White House Call Girl, describing the prostitution ring of one Kathy Dieter, which he claims is an alias for Heidi Riken, also implicates Russell, through Bailey's statements, as part of the covert taping program at the Heidi-slash-Kathy Columbia Plaza apartment. Hogan documents Russell's work with an attractive blonde madam who appears, per Colodney's work, to have been Heidi-slash-Kathy. If true, this would explain Russell's interest in the DNC wiretapping, which would have monitored the call girl operation he had been taping for the CIA with the girl's consent. And remember, from White House Call Girl, we know that there was a statement to Bailey by Kathy that the CIA had been protecting her. We are not certain how Russell's possible involvement first came to the intention of the FBI, but it did so quite early on. In his initial July 9, 1970 FBI interview, Russell stated to agents that he ate at the Howard Johnson's restaurant the night before the burglary and had visited the Watergate area that night only because he was nostalgic for an old girlfriend, a prostitute, who used a hairdresser in the area. However, in his interview with the FBI of October 10, 1972, he admitted that he had eaten at the Hojo on the night of the burglary, but continued to deny that he had entered the office building that night. After it appeared that the FBI agents did not buy his story, Russell reportedly told them to shove off. On October 11, 1972, a young reporter for the Washington Star News, Patrick Collins, wrote a blockbuster article on Russell, albeit one that did not, similar to the scintillating Chicago Today story about Stevens, gain any appreciable recirculation. Collins, with smart, logical prose, linked Russell as the person referred to as the sixth burglar. One of the key revelations in Collins' article was Russell's post-arrest living situation. No longer living in a $15 a week room on down and out Q Street, he was now housed in relative luxury in a $185 per month, that was a high rent in 1972, apartment in Silver Springs, Maryland. His benefactor, Russell revealed, often took him out for expensive meals. From other sources, we know that the benefactor was a CIA-connected stockbroker by the name of William Byerly. Other research has him living in his Silver Springs digs with a prostitute. All of this suggests that the CIA was making this potential alcohol-fueled bomb was making sure that it did not go off. Things were getting a bit hot for our burly investigator when Watergate Committee Minority Counsel Fred Thompson, if you remember him, he became a TV star, but he was the assistant to Senator Howard Baker of Tennessee, and he issued a subpoena to Russell on May 9, 1973, seeking Russell's phone and banking records in advance of the hearings. Russell replied on May 11 that he had none. This was perhaps true since Russell did not maintain a bank account, but minority counsel was certain to follow up and question Russell. The CIA would know that this erratic man may soon be called to testify, and Russell may have been given his benefactors an even more dire warning. He confided, to the extent that this loud and tour was capable of confiding at all, that he planned to write a tell-all book on Watergate, but he made the mistake of telling that to individuals with wide connections to the intelligence community, which likely included his own prostitute girlfriend. We did not know if Russell was planning to reveal Stevens' real name and role, or if he'd even contacted Stevens. But as McCord's right hand man, Russell in May certainly would have known of the CIA's and Stevens' role in the burglary operations, and probably of the satellite linking bugs McCord had on order, which in turn would give away a broader CIA prostitute taping program. Russell would clearly have known of this if he was involved, as he had bragged, in taping of prostitutes. But whether Russell had made contact with Stevens or not, Russell knew plenty and was almost certainly the sixth burglar. Russell's loose talk would likely have spurred CIA attention to Stevens, leading to the threatening calls he eventually reported in May 1973. On May 18, 1973, one day after the dire May 16-17 garage warnings of a disturbed Deep Throat, Russell fell violently ill, claiming someone had switched his heart medicine with poison. He died shortly thereafter from a compromised cardiac system. When Howard Hunt earlier had dragooned the credulous Liddy to a meeting to discuss with his CIA poisons doctor Howard Gunn ways of disabling troublesome reporter Jack Anderson, one of the murderous methods discussed was what was known as, quote, aspirin roulette, unquote. A poison pill would be substituted for aspirin in the aspirin bottle, and sooner or later, the victim would swallow it. While the group ultimately dismissed this particular technique to be used on Anderson, it is eerily similar to the method apparently used on Russell, and thus consistent with CIA involvement. Russell's presence as the sixth burglar of lore suggests a hidden agenda pursued by the CIA. It explains, as we have noted, the continuing taping of the locks after all the burglars had entered. This would, of course, allow Russell to enter. It also explains McCord's delay in pronouncing the DNC office as clear while waiting Russell's return from Benedict, Maryland. It would also explain the identifiable McCord's presence on the team, his frequent absences on the night of the burglary and the need to curate what McCord feared would be documents which, if transmitted to Dean and others without curation, would involve far too much about the CIA's programs. Russell's death, moreover, was one of the most significant pieces of evidence we have presented in our exploration of Watergate mysteries. Put differently, if the Watergate burglaries were solely a Nixon administration project, would there have been any need to poison Lou Russell? would there have been any need for his presence during the burglary. His death certificate, then, should be Exhibit A in the case against the CIA. If the Watergate burglaries were solely a Nixon administration project, then there would have been no reason for Russell to have been lurking as the sixth burglar. So the October 11, 1972 Washington Star News article about Russell should be Exhibit B in that same case against the CIA, documenting Russell's admission that he was in the vicinity of the Watergate office building on the night of the burglary. Russell's participation is about as strong evidence as one could find proving CIA covert involvement in the burglary. Or is it? Is there stronger Could there possibly be even stronger proof than Russell's presence, combined with Michael Stevens' admission that he was selling bugs to McCord set to link to a CIA satellite after the CIA confirmed McCord's agency? Well, yes. Believe it or not, there's even stronger proof, amazingly. Evidence which must be considered the key to Watergate. To that evidence, we will turn in our next episode. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please give me a five-star review on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends. I truly enjoy being here and solving the mysteries of Watergate with you. If you have any questions about what we've discussed, please email me through the contact page of postgatebook.com or send me a tweet to at the John D. O'Connor. We'll meet back here during the next episode for more Mysteries of Watergate.